Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Watch Talk Heathen Live Sundays at 1 p.m. Central. Visit tiny.cc slash YTTH and call into the show at 512-991-9242 or connect to the show online at tiny.cc slash call TH. Welcome to another episode of Truth Wanted. I am your host, Nate Smith, filling in for Objectively Dan, who sadly had something come up at the last moment. Um, so I am happy to be your host of Last Resort. You may remember me from such ACA shows as Secular Sexuality, Nonprofits, and Lead Paint, Delicious But Deadly. I'm just kidding. That, that's not an ACA show. This is the live call-in show that happens every single, single week. Fridays at 7 p.m. Central Time, where we want to talk to you. We want to talk to people. We want to talk to folks from around the globe about what they believe and why. So if you want to talk to us, you can give us a call at 512-991-9242. Or if you've joined us in the uh, 21st century at tiny.cc slash call. So give us a call, folks. We want to talk to you. Truth Wanted. Truth Wanted is evidently a product of the atheist community of Austin. Now, what's the atheist community of Austin, you might ask? Well, it's a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to the promotion of positive atheist culture and the separation of religion and government. A noble cause. Each week, we have a special guest. Joining me this week is, is no different. Welcome, MD Aware. Hey guys, uh, thanks for having me on. Very happy to be here. I'm glad to talk to you, especially as a fellow snowbro, uh, as, as I recently discovered before the show. Um, apparently, Dan absconds for one week and the Canadians move right in to take over. So, yeah, we're taking over the ACA. Yeah, but we promise we won't burn down the White House this time. Yeah, not this time. Technically, wasn't <laughs> us. It was the British. But hey, we were we were we were watching and drinking beers at the same time. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so MD aware um tell me a little bit about yourself what do you do what's your gig what are you up to sure um so i am a resident physician in uh, general surgery so like those folks on gray's anatomy in the first season that's like what i do um 
And I am also, at the same time as I'm doing my residency, I'm doing a PhD in biomedical engineering. Uh, so uh, my PhD focuses on cancer nanomedicine. So I'm working at the intersection of sort of nanotechnology uh, and nanomedicine and obviously cancer. Uh, I specialize in gastrointestinal cancer, uh, which goes along with my surgical training. Um, and eventually I'm going to hopefully become a uh, attending gastrointestinal cancer surgeon. Uh, so that's where I'm sort of heading. That's what I'm doing right now. Uh, I did my undergrad in um, life sciences, so like your basic biology type stuff. And uh, my undergrad training was very sort of a general scientific foundation and then more depth in biology. So I took courses in astronomy and physics and chemistry and psychology as well as the biology. And um, I had a special interest in uh, evolutionary biology. So I looked a lot into that. Um, my backup in case I didn't get into medical school was to uh, go and study evolutionary biology. And I'd already been accepted to graduate school for that. So I had a special interest in it. And, uh, and I've sort of cultivated all of this uh, knowledge that just happens to come in very handy for the type of topics that we get on Truth Wanted. So I'm happy to bring all of that here. So it sounds to me like you never, ever sleep. Would that be a fair assessment? <laughs> well, I certainly sleep less than I probably should. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I yeah. believe it. I'm, I'm now harboring suspicions that you're in league with Skynet and you've attempted to infiltrate this show in, uh, in, in a devious plot to undermine the most skeptical among us. Well, they are the prime target. Exactly. Exactly. Because everybody else is going to play along. But the skeptics, they're going to be the first ones that are on to you. Absolutely. Yes. Speaking of wacky conspiracy theories, this is the show that wants to talk to you folks. If you believe something off color, something maybe not in the mainstream, give us a call because we are nice people and we want to hear from you guys. Again, it's 512-991-9242 or on your in on your computer, tiny.cc slash call TW. So uh <clears throat> MD, this is um this is your first spot on uh, on an ACA show, which is uh, amazing. I feel privileged that I'm able to usher you into the fold. Um, you reached out to to us, right? Yeah, yeah, I did. Okay, um, tell, tell, tell our audience a little bit about why you felt that you needed to do that. So uh, I listen to the podcasts of all the, sort of the ACA shows uh, while I'm doing all of my lab experiments and things like that. Um, and the thing that I realized is that a lot of the problems uh, that I think people have, a lot of the callers have, is a misattribution of causation, right? So they see thing A, event A, and they see consequence B, or what they perceive to be consequence B, and they draw a link there. And they say, well, this happened and then this happened. So there must be a causal relationship, right? A must have caused B. Um, and because of the way that we're trained to think in a PhD and in the sciences, uh, and because I'm doing it every day, I am thinking like, well, how can people think this? You know, mm -hmm. like there's so many steps in between A and B that everyone's overlooking. And so my hope is that 
if people have these questions that I can shine a little bit of light on that and point out some of the steps that you'd need to go to if you want to actually draw that causal link. You know, there's going to be, you can't just go straight from A to B, you got to go to A and then A1 and A2. There's a whole bunch of steps in between these two before you can make a reasonable conclusion uh, that one leads to the other. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of folks out there that tend to jump from hypothesis to conclusion and skip the 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 most important steps in the middle that make the <laughs> scientific process what it is. Um, so I, I think that's great that, that you're here. And um, I think you're going to be uh, a, a great guest for the show. This is, this is going to be interesting. Um, so you said that you're studying nanotech technology. Now, I want you to tell me a little bit about that because I'll I'll tell you why later, but you already know we were talking a little bit about it uh, before the show, but um, tell me, tell me more about technology, nanotechnology and how it applies to research. Sure. So, I mean, I think that people overestimate the sophistication of nano blank, right? It's just sort of like a buzzword. It's like quantum, right? Right. Um, So when we think about things medically and biologically, there are different scales, obviously. And so the smallest scale that we usually work with when we're talking about medicine are like small molecule drugs, things like aspirin, right? And those are like a handful of atoms sort of thing, right? Uh, And sort of the next big step up is when you get to the nanomedicine. So it's actually bigger, like people think of nano as being really small, but it's actually bigger than a lot of the drugs that we use. But the thing that's unique about it is that nano ends up being about the size of sort of biology. A lot of things in biology are nano size, you know, cells end up being sort of in that nano size region. Uh, And so there's a lot of hope that we can use nanotechnologies that are built on the same scale to affect biology. And so my research focuses on delivering uh, nanoparticles with specific properties to um, cancer cells, essentially. And it's the property of these nanomedicines is that they preferentially accumulate in cancer cells. So in theory, it's like that silver bullet that everyone's looking for, right? You want a a therapeutic or a drug or a treatment that will only destroy the tumor because the problem that we face right now with chemotherapy and all that stuff is that the chemotherapy is like a poison. It poisons everything. And the whole principle is that the things that are growing the fastest, which are the cancer cells, are the ones that are going to consume more of the toxin and therefore die more quickly. And you hope that the rest of your cells will be okay. And so with nanomedicine, we try to avoid all of that toxicity to your normal cells by delivering the drug or the treatment or whatever it is specifically to the tumor. And now I do that. So I work with nanomedicines, but I also work with lasers because uh, this nanomedicine that I'm working with is um, is activated by lasers. So I give an injection of a nanomedicine to a test animal and then I uh, with a tumor and then I shine a laser on the tumor and I try to kill the tumor as best I can. So that's essentially what I do on a daily basis. I'm even more convinced that you're working for Skynet now. I'm not going to lie. Cyberdyne Systems. (laughs) I'm not sure what your real name is, but I have a sneaking suspicion that it might be Miles Dice. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, we actually talked about uh, animal testing on a recent episode of the nonprofits that will be airing on Sunday, Sunday between Talk Heathen and the Atheist Experience, and cool. had some interesting perspectives on that. So, uh, yeah, definitely tune in for that, folks. Um, so we do have we do have callers waiting for us. Please Fantastic. hold on the line because we want to talk to you, but we still do have open lines, folks. So. So if you're shy, you're hanging in the shadows. MD Ware is a pretty nice guy. Um, I've been told I'm a pretty nice guy, but I haven't seen sufficient evidence to prove that. But give us a call, 512-991-9242 or tiny.cc slash call TW. Now, before we get to calls, I do need to shout out our Patreon of the week. Every single week, we shout out a patron that donates through tiny.cc slash Patreon TW for supporting this show. This show is all run by volunteers. Oh, look, it's a picture of Dan. I guess they couldn't get me in there in time. That's fine. Tiny.cc slash Patreon.tw. This show is all run by volunteers. Myself, the the crew, the guest, we don't get paid for this. We just want to get this message out to you folks. And if you want to support that, please give us money. If you can't give us money, share, like, subscribe, etc., etc. This week's Patreon of the Week, who allows us to continue with our mission is drum roll Denny Thomas Denny Thomas thank you for helping us accomplish our mission we super appreciate it we appreciate everybody that is able to support the mission of Truth Wanted and the mission of the atheist community of Austin thank you again Denny Thomas all right now I think, I think, I've been told, I have sufficient empirical evidence to believe that this is a call-in show. So, MD Aware, on the maiden voyage of your ACA journey, are you ready to take some phone calls? I'm totally ready. Let's do it. I think he, I think you were born ready. So, I think we need to talk. We need to talk to Richard from New York. Richard from New York, you are on Truth Wanted. What's on your mind? Hi, it's good to be on. Thank you for calling. Thank you for calling. What do you got for us today? Well, I have a story about time travel and how I time traveled myself. Is there a DeLorean involved? Nope, no DeLorean, no machine. It was all uh, <laughs> wireless. Okay, all right. I'm, that is that is cool, man. Uh, I'm all ears. Dig, dive in. Okay, so one day in 2018, I was out on a walk just in the neighborhood, and I, well, I'm a schizophrenic. I hear voices in my head, and okay. um, I believe it's a spiritual thing, not a mental thing, but that's just an opinion. And anyway, one of the voices in my head who I identify as the Holy Spirit um, said to throw out my phone into a waste bin when I was out on the walk, and so I complied, and... Um, the next day when I was out on a walk without my phone, in a flash, my surroundings changed, and I was back in a park where my family used to have reunions, family reunions. Not the same park, I'm assuming? Nope. Um, I was, it was probably three or four miles away from where I was walking. Um, but when I looked away from my walking trail, the surroundings around me just suddenly flashed and changed. Hmm. How long did they change for? Well, I was there in the park uh, for about 45 minutes. I saw myself on my mom's lap as a kid. I estimate the year to be about 1992, so it was from 2018 to 1992. Um, based on my age, I was about three or four at the time. So it sounds like this and, is um, a... Uh... It sounds like this is a memory that you're reliving. Is that correct? Yeah, it was plain as day. It was a regular memory. Um, I remember 
I remember it because it was so extraordinary, of course. And how do you know you weren't just reliving a memory in your sort of mind's eye? Like, how do you know you were actually time traveling? Well, um, as far as I can tell, it was me on my mom's lap. And I looked around and there was my family there and all of my relatives. I got the feeling like I was alone. Like if I talked to them, they wouldn't reply. Kind of like it was a recording. It was kind of a strange feeling. Did you try to talk to them at all? Um, no, not really. Um, I got the feeling that if I did anything, it wouldn't be responded to. Um, this makes me think that, uh, are you familiar with determinism? I am. I'm sure I'm uh, aware this makes is me as well. Think that, yeah. This makes me think that the timeline that I was in was more deterministically said as opposed to probabilistic. So I think that um, whatever forces put probability into the universe or whatever, however that works, like quantum effects, I'm not quite an expert on it, but whatever effects do that were lessened in this area so that um, because I had been there previously, I couldn't really alter it for all I could do. Okay, I just want to slow down for a second because we're jumping a little bit. Uh, I think the first thing we need to do before we start talking about whether this is evidence of a deterministic rather than a quantum universe or some or a probabilistic universe, we have to establish that you in fact time traveled, right? Would you agree with that, Richard? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so how do you think we can? How do you think we can make that determination? Well, it was as real as as I'm calling you now. So if if that was a memory that I was reliving, then this could be a memory that I'm reliving too. I mean, for all we know, we're in the simulation theory, like in the Matrix, and everything's a brain in the jar. But um, I mean, so there's no certainty that it was time travel. But as far as I could tell from all the senses that I was gathering, it was a different time. Well, we don't need to be certain, right? We just need to have a good reason to believe something, right? So so I think that I have a, a good reason to believe that I'm on Truth Wanted and I'm talking to uh, Nate and Richard. And, uh, and that's based on, you know, sort of my history. Now, there are things, you're right, there's assumptions that go into that at the back end that we have to make to get out of... Um, to be able to actually investigate the world. But once we make those assumptions, we can start to try to draw conclusions. So so if we're talking about this time travel situation, is there any way that you can prove that this was time travel versus a memory? How would you, if you were me and I was telling you this story, how would you differentiate between something that was someone reliving a memory and an actual incidence of time travel? Well, I think that um, reality is dictated by the senses as we don't really have any other way. So the fact that I saw my family there, I saw myself on my mom's lap back when I was still blonde, and the fact that I saw my relatives around, and that I can vaguely remember seeing a man who seemed out of place from when I was that young, when I was three or four, um, I get the feeling that it was indeed time travel. Um, I don't know the alternative. Maybe it could have been in 2018, but a bunch of uh, body doubles of me and my family, but that doesn't seem as likely. That that seems a lot less likely to me as well. And But, but I think uh, MD Aware made a really good point. How would you be able to tell the difference between a hallucination and an actual instance of time travel? If, as you say, you didn't attempt to interact with your mother or your younger self or, or anybody around, how would we be able to tell that this was an incident, incidence of time 
time travel and not just, you know, a, a hallucination or maybe you fell asleep on the park bench or, you know, some more mundane explanation. Why, why does this have to be time well, travel? What property does time travel have that any other explanation could not have? Well, I don't think that there's any way to account for it in terms of a dream because usually in a dream you have limited sensory ability or limited capability, like you feel like you're floating or you're disconnected from your body, and I didn't feel any of that. I felt quite as real as I'm sitting here now. Well, but, sometimes sorry, well, I there just is wanna... such a thing as lucid dreaming, where people do have control of their dreams and are able to interact with the with, with what's going on. Um, I do it myself sometimes. Not a lot of people are able to lucid dream, but it, it is a thing. Sorry, MD, uh, go ahead. I just want to pick up on something you said, Richard. You said most of the time you... XYZ with dreams, but we don't even have to think about most of the time, right? I, I think I would go as far as to say that the least likely uh, incident, right? The least likely thing that happens with a dream is still more likely than time travel, right? The least likely component of a dream, the least likely um, property that a dream could have is still going to be more likely than time travel. Would you agree with that, Richard? Um, well, not based on my experience, um, because I was out walking and I was highly alert at the time. I wasn't sitting on a park bench or napping or anything like that. So there would have been a discontinuity there where, like, if I had sat down on a bench and I closed my eyes, then I would be willing to believe that it was a dream. But because I was active and out walking, it seems less likely to me. Let me give you an example of what I mean. If pretend you're someone like me, you're a doctor, and someone comes in to you and they have a cough and a sore throat, the most likely cause of something like that is a cold virus of some kind like that, right? It's going to go away on its own. A much less likely cause is yeah. something like tuberculosis. So even if the cold hypothesis doesn't fully explain the symptoms, it's still a much more likely thing to occur, right? It's much more likely to occur than, say, tuberculosis. And so I think what you have to do is you have to rule out the most likely cause you have to completely rule it out, regardless of how likely or how or your assessment of the probability that it'll fit with what you're seeing. You still have to rule it out before you can go on to the less likely thing. Would you agree with that, Richard? Yeah, I'd say so. Um, but the only way that we base our our attitudes of what is most likely is based on our experience. So if we have a one-off, like a black swan event, then how do we know that it's not the regular everyday life that we have. I mean, doesn't a belief that everything unlikely or, un, or uncommon is based on a more common event lead you to believing only in things that are common? I get no, your I point. mean, less common. I, I get that. Yeah. But less common events still happen. Like the, believing that or, or knowing that events that happen more often do happen more often doesn't necessarily doesn't doesn't preclude me from believing in rare events. I, I mean, it's still possible. Yeah, and but what but what MD's saying is that before we proceed to something that we have less experience with, don't you think it behooves you to eliminate the more likely explanation first? Well, um, the hallucinations was the other one. And um, I can usually yeah. differentiate hallucinations. I give a lot of them. They're usually glowing lights on the wall. In fact, they're always glowing lights on the wall. 
and um, not everyday life. I mean, I don't have any hallucinations which are just like regular non-glowing objects. So uh, you've never had any hallucinations that were anything other than glowing objects on the wall? Nope, that's pretty much all I see, glowing lights on the wall or like okay. eyes. Richard, you mentioned that you had schizophrenia. Um, would you agree I, that yeah. other other people who have schizophrenia have hallucinations that they can't differentiate between the hallucination and reality? Would you say that that's true for others with schizophrenia? Well, I think that's more of a philosophical thing, saying that reality is defined by the senses and that if they have differentiate, if they can't differentiate between hallucinations and reality, it's because they view hallucinations as just another part of reality. Whereas, okay, um, let me, uh, let me redefine that then. The reality that's consistent with what other people uh, seem to observe. I see what you're getting with. I see what you're getting at. You're having trouble with the solipsistic argument, right? You're saying, I don't actually know that, you know, all of this stuff is just my senses. Um, I, I get it. But uh, if we assume that our senses are right most of the time, and that we can rely on the, you know, other people to sort of check our conclusions, would you agree that there's a distinction between what most people assume or, or say is the truth and what some people with certain mental conditions uh, that, you know, describe something that other people call hallucinations. Would you say that there's a difference between those two things? Yeah, I mean, um, hallucinations are subjective and um, most of reality is objective. I think that a lot of people have a bias towards objective reality, primarily because of science, given that you can't really test anything subjective. So they're less likely to believe in it or trust the validity of something that's subjective. So do you think we should trust anything without testing it? Um, well, I think that reality is based on the senses and um, there's nothing purely objective. All that we have for objectivity is shared subjectivity. So um, sharing something doesn't necessarily imply that it is the case. It just implies that there is a concurrent or a um, according reaction by someone who also agrees with it. For all we know, it could be entirely simulation theory and even the reactions that give us the, um, the agreement upon subjective reality are all subjective in nature and that there is no objective reality. Essentially, but, there is no spoon. <laughs> but Richard, if, if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? Uh, my, my thought is that you can't prove that it makes a sound. Well, I, I think that you could demonstrate that it does in indeed produce sound waves. And if there's no one there to perceive those sound waves, they still exist. They're still there. So I don't, I don't know if I can get on board with reality is only what the senses perceive because there was a whole lot of reality before there were people around to perceive it. You know, the, like the earth's only what, 4 billion years old. The universe is what, 14, 14.7 and change. So there have been there has been a reality long before there were people around to perceive it or, you know, protozoa or tiny little uh, animals swimming around in the prehistoric goo. Right. So I, I don't know if I can get on board with that. Well, I think that the only way that we know that there is a reality that's that old is through the senses and by observation of the cosmic microwave background through the senses by someone's eye in a telescope. And there's no separating objective reality from subjective realities. So objective reality may exist or it may not. Um, there's really no way to tell without using the senses. Yeah, so I think this still goes back to solipsism ultimately, right, Richard? I think what you're saying is, well, 
all of you scientists and objectivists, you're just assuming that your senses are reliable and uh, and that everything you're observing is an act is a representation of air quotes reality, right? Uh, and you're saying, well, who's to say that my subjective experience isn't exactly as valid as your objective, your again air quotes objective experience? Is that is that sort of what you're saying, Richard? More or less, though I wouldn't do it dismissively. I'm also into science. I've been a geek since I was young. Right. So so I think that's where we depart. Right. At some point, uh, actually, very early, or at least that's where I depart. I fully acknowledge that I'm assuming that, you know, some of my senses are right some of the time, most of my senses are right most of the time. And there are, you know, liminal states that I can be in where my senses deceive me, but I rely on other people. I, I make the assumption that I'm not the only thing that exists and that other minds exist and can, you know, verify my experience. And, uh, and it sounds like you don't make that assumption. Well, no, I, I wouldn't call myself a solipsist because I do believe that um, people do exist and um, I can't verify it, but just intuitively it seems likely to me. I would call myself more as someone who believes in the validity of subjectivity as opposed to direct solipsism itself because I do believe that there is something other than my mind. I guess I just can't prove it. So I guess you might call that solipsism. I never think of myself as a solipsist, though. So, so you mentioned you, so you said something about the validity, you believe in the validity of a subjective experience. Uh, how do you Correct. show because because validity is something that you have to demonstrate, right? If I want to say that something is valid, I have to demonstrate that in some fashion. So how would you demonstrate the validity of your subjective experience? Well, that's the problem. How does anyone valid, uh, validate the or how does anyone share the validity of their subjective experience? There's only subjective experience, so well. So, so we well, usually no compare it to an objective, uh, an objective standard, or or at least the subjective experiences of others, right? So, right. if I saw something, you know, appear in the room uh, that I couldn't explain, I might ask other people in the room if they also saw that. That's a way of trying to validate my subjective experience and see if that was something that occurred outside of me or something that occurred within my mind. Yeah, I would call that shared subjectivity. That's the basis for objective reality that I follow. I don't think that cameras are inherently a better judge of, of the world than eyes. I think that shared subjectivity is probably the best way to get objectivity. I think there's that's a sort of a different, <laughs> a different tack to get onto. Um, but then, so so, how do you, if you agree that you sort of need uh, a shared subjectivity, as you call it, how did you uh, validate your time travel experience using this shared subjectivity? Uh, I didn't, and I can't prove that it was objective, but it was as real to me as everyday life is. So if I can't prove that that's objective, then I can't prove that right now is objective, and I can't technically prove that anyone exists. But you can... But we have here. a shared subjectivity, right? Yeah, we're here. Yeah. So that's, I think that goes back to Nate's question, right? He asked you for evidence of shared subjectivity, right? He asked if you spoke to the people that you saw uh, when you time traveled. Uh, did you, were well, you able to, to validate this, right? That's what, he, that's what Nate was really asking. I spoke to some of my relatives who were at the family reunion and they said that they couldn't remember. Granted, it was a long time ago and I barely remember myself. So what do you think the most reasonable thing to believe is that if you can't 
if you well, can't get your subjective your your subjective validation uh what do you think the most reasonable thing to believe is well i think that i'm just going based on the status quo that um i assume that objective reality exists and this is no different than any other day so um i have no reason to think that it was entirely subjective even though i didn't share it like I never share going to the bathroom, but I'm pretty sure that going to the bathroom is objective. Do you see how this is a little bit of a different thing, though? Like, how many times have you time traveled versus how many times have you used the washroom? Uh, one was a one-off, and the other, t um, and the other times probably pretty often. Right. So, so right. again, or I'm going to quote like Carl Sagan, who said extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, right? And the extraordinary thing here is that you're talking about an event that even for you has only occurred once. So I would call that an extraordinary event. It's not part of your ordinary everyday experience. And so I would, if it no, were I me, I would want some additional verification that that had actually occurred. That would be the first thing that I did, I would do too. You know, if, if I were transported back to a family memory from years ago, I, you know, the first thing I would do would be like, wow, this is cool. I'm going to go talk to my Aunt Karen. I'm going to go see if this is, I'm going to investigate this. And and the fact that you didn't do that kind of kind of makes me think that maybe it was just a dream or a hallucination. This, wh why wouldn't you why wouldn't you want to go up and, and and investigate and talk and find out whether this is a real experience or not? Especially considering, like you said, this this doesn't happen to you. This hasn't happened to you. You do suffer hallucinations because of your condition, but not this one. So I would I would think, especially in your position as somebody who does suffer from this and encountering a new phenomena, this would be the first thing that you want to do is you want to go and you want to verify this thing. And, and the fact that you didn't do that makes me think that you are more an observer than a participant, hence probably dreaming. Well, I would call myself an observer, yes. Um, but I wouldn't say that necessarily uh, equates to dreaming. Well, but so, you you said yourself that you felt like if you were to interfere or interact, that it would end. No, not Again, that it would sound end. Sound like you were reliving um, a pleasant experience that you didn't want to stop. I'm not. I'm not judging you for that. I wouldn't want it to stop either. I would. I would love to go back to a pleasant memory from my past and watch it again. That would be amazing. So no, I'm not judging you for not wanting to disturb that. But doesn't that sort of indicate to you that it that probably inside of your own mind, it would. You know, it it was a construct of that mind, whether it was a dream or a hallucination, it doesn't really matter. Um, it, it it seems to me like it was probably just a, a machination of the wetware inside of your skull. But but let's take us. Like a step back, Richard, would you say that it's more reasonable to say that it was actually time travel? Or would it be more fair to say that you had an experience and we don't really have any good verification or a uh, firm idea of what happened? It was an unprecedented event, even for you. Yeah. So, That's what I was so, saying. Yeah. Yeah. So we're not even, uh, you know, I'm not even going to push you as like a, from a scientific perspective, I won't even get you to say, it was definitely a hallucination because frankly, we don't have any evidence that it was a hallucination per se, right? All we have is yeah. a reasonable, uh, I think all we have is a reasonable um, belief that this was not in fact time travel. And so we would have to do more investigation to figure out what the actual cause of this was. And so I would say, Richard, if you have this experience, so what I would say, if I can give you homework, is uh, I would sure. think about 
if this happens again, how am I going to be able to verify it? How can I test this? How could what can I do in the past? Maybe you can, you know, go up to uh, one of your relatives who's still alive and you could give them a password or something like that. And you say, if I say this word to you in the future at some point, then I want you to get, say this back to me, right? And then you've created a method of testing. And then when you come back to the present day, you can go to that relative and you can test to see if they've taken that word, right? So that's like just one example of something you could do to test whether this is a thing that actually uh, occurred. Do you think that that's, does that sound reasonable to you, Richard? Well, um, I wasn't really interested in testing it. In fact, at the time, I was in a very calm state and I w had no doubt that it was real. I, it seemed very obvious to me that I was in the past. And even though this was a rare experience, I had the strange feeling about it that I was just kind of gliding through it. And so are you interested in testing it, it now? Abnormal. Well, uh, after the fact, there's not really much that I could do. And I I still have the memory plain as day. So to me, it's proof. I agree. I mean, I understand that it's only an anecdote, so I can't really relay it. But, but I'm saying if this, if this yeah. were to happen again, would you be interested in testing it? Um, I suppose I could go through the effort. It's not like uh, something that would be a priority to me. I mean, it kind of should be, especially if you're going to purport it as an incidence of time travel. I would think you would want some good reason for other people to believe that it is such and not just, as you, as you say, not just a cool story. And it is a cool story. Don't get me wrong. But you, you kind of probably should be more interested in finding out if it's if if it is an actual instance of time travel or or just a dream. Especially well, like you sound like you sound a like a smart dream. guy. You you sound like you're you know like you've really thought about this. Um, so for I'm you not to the go one from, working on now in technology. No, well, neither am I, Richard. We've, we're, but fortunately, we've got MD Aware here to uh, to watch over us. But uh, I think Don't we're going to move on. It's not as complicated as it sounds. Um, he, I, I'm sure it's just very, very small. Um, I think we do need to move on. But Richard, I, I do want to thank you for calling and sharing your experience um, yes. with us. And um, you know, hey, like if this happens again, try try to interact, right? Um, Houdini had a thing where uh, the last few years of his life, he was trying to debunk uh, mysticism and seances, and he gave his wife a password so that, you know, if she could ever contact him in the afterlife, he would know this password. And and I think that's kind of what MD Aware is getting at here. So, yeah, if it happens again, do that and get us, you know, get us a passcode, and, and we want to hear back from you. Seems unlikely. Absolutely. Well, if it's only happened once... It seems unlikely that it that it would happen again. But I mean, strange things happen, right? One one time a strange thing happened to you, so it could happen again. Yeah. But Richard, I want to thank you very much for calling in. And uh yeah, that was that was an interesting call. Yeah, no, that was that was great, man. You, you take care. Interesting. Time yeah, travel totally. in the park. That's I don't it. know. How, what do you what do you think, Nate? How did I do? Inaugural voyage. That was really good. You you asked some great questions. Um you you took him down a path and and sort of challenged him a little bit you know without without being without being mean because we, we don't want to be mean uh on this show we want folks to call in we want to we want to talk to them but um and i mean we don't want to besmirch the good name of canadians no certainly not we canadians have a very good name for being polite and kind but i don't know man somebody somebody who's already admitted to having hallucinations to to have another claim 
about a hallucination that they're sure was real, but you know, did did nothing to demonstrate that or did nothing to investigate that. Uh, I'm skeptical. I'm not convinced. Yeah, I'm now, right there with you. I don't know. Maybe if he had Doc Brown and Einstein in the DeLorean, then I might have been a little more convinced. But eh, I don't know. It, it To me, it just boils down to a cool story, which is the problem with a lot of these claims of the paranormal um which of which i even have one too like i i lived in a not haunted house but encountered things for which i have no explanation but uh, i still have to believe that at the end of the day there is an explanation and the fact that i don't know what it is doesn't mean ghosts are real and the souls of the dead have come back to to bother the living you know like you've got to go like what you you were saying you've got to go with the more likely solution and i kind of think like that guy jumped the gun what do you think yeah i mean i have to agree obviously uh i like i said i'm a scientist very conservative i will only say something if i know if i have good reason to believe it's true i didn't have good reason to believe that he had uh that he was describing a hallucination um despite you know perhaps his past medical history but uh, i feel firm enough that we can conclude that this was not an incidence of time travel based on what he presented and so i'm happy to leave it at that he had an experience that we don't uh, that we don't have evidence to suggest what it was in fact right and right. we have to leave it at that until we have more evidence. Yeah, absolutely. Now, folks, this show, as fascinating as it is, is not the only show that the atheist community of Austin produced. There are other shows, shows such as Secular Sexuality. See that? Okay. Nonprofits, talk even the atheist experience. And if you've missed, if you haven't been watching, I want to give y'all a quick sneak peek at some of the gold that you might have been missing. Not, not that I want to like endorse misgendering, but if it's a cis person and they're calling you like the absolute wrong pronoun, you're like, oh yes, thank you, ma'am, to like a big burly cis man. For a long time, I've known about a, a thing that they call soaking. Right, which right. is where he puts it in, and then they don't do anything. Yes, because because the Lord's vision, like T Rex, is based on movement. Wait, as the new as the guest host here, am I obligated to say vagina at any point? If well, I am expected show. to say it, I could come up with some kind of weird excuse to try to work it into the conversation. You can just listen. Close your eyes. You listen won't to have the... to look at our faces. No, no, you don't. You don't have to. This isn't. This isn't podcast form. You can look at something else. Look at the trees. That is my legacy. That is. That yeah. is what I've left for the world. <laughs> that is my legacy. You're welcome, internet. You're welcome. Also, vagina. Oh, man. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I, I love the highlight reel. I really, really yeah, do. And Nate, what's your bet? How long will that uh, that joke last? How many weeks I, consecutively? 
I mean, it it's kind of a running thing, so I'm going to give it uh, seven weeks. Wow, okay. Yeah. I, I was going to go even higher, three yeah. months. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it might be one of those things that kind of gets to be like, um, like an inside joke, so it's only like, hey, if you were watching the ACA shows during the autumn and winter of 2021, then you're going to get the giant joke. Otherwise, man, you're just not one of the cool kids. But we've, we've, we've had quite a few um, funny memes memes come and go and uh vagina is definitely one of the best ones that we've had we we definitely need to keep that up and we need to normalize that I, as i'm sure as a medical doctor you can agree we need to oh, stop yeah. renaming things with these infantile uh, uh monikers and just just say what it, it's a penis yeah half of us have one i mean you know what really kills me is i don't know why but the term womb I really dislike. I prefer uterus. Like that's what you see in the medical textbooks. Whenever someone says womb, it just seems loaded with so much baggage from like mm -hmm. not just religious, but all these other things. I just, I don't know. It really gets me. It's under my skin for some reason. It's a hmm. uterus. Interesting. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I can't say that I've had an objection to the word womb, but, uh, but I do certainly agree that there's benefit to be had, um, especially in terms of, you know, sex education and teaching your kids not to be comfortable with their own bodies. I think it's better to just the actual uh, anatomical terms. But, but before we go off on a tangent about penises, vaginas, and <laughs> And the various uh, medical lexicon that we should all be using. We have a call. We have a call just for you. Just really? For you. Yes. We have a caller. They want to ask you specifically, not Nate, not me. No, no one cares what I have to say. And I can't say that I blame them. But we have a call from Kanita in California. And I'm just going to let them go ahead and ask it to you. Kanita in California, you are live on Truth Wanted. Um, hi. Uh MD, I'm wondering whether, since you know about nanotechnology, I'm wondering if you've heard about cryonics. Uh, I have heard the term. I know a little bit. What? Why don't you tell me what you think about cryonics? What do you mean when you okay. say cryonics? Uh, basically, it's a procedure where immediately after you're declared dead, but before as far as I'm concerned, you're really dead because death is a process. They uh, lower your body to liquid nitrogen temperature and leave it there for as long as it takes for medical science to advance to the point where they could fix whatever was wrong with you and return you to life and health. Yeah, so I've heard about this. Um, I don't think that it's something that we can do uh, with current technology. Uh, there's a saying in medicine that you're not dead until you're warm and dead because people come back from being very, very cold and being what you'd call clinically dead, right? Their hearts stop, they're not breathing, but uh, yeah. their metabolic processes in their cells have been slowed by the cold to such an extent that, um, that you know, you're not actually, the cells aren't dying, right? Uh, and right. so it's got a biological basis to a certain extent. I watched a documentary on Netflix just uh, earlier this week about a diver who ran out of oxygen uh, in four degrees Celsius water and was under without air for about a half an hour. And he was able to be revived. And, you know, there's some very reasonable biological explanations about that. You know, probably he was at such a depth that the partial pressure of oxygen in his tissues made it so that he had a lot of oxygen sort of stored in his tissues. But certainly the contribution of this very cold water and a very low 
body temperature contributed to him being able to be revived. Now, when you're talking about cryonics, I think that that's a kind of a different story and there's some problems. So first of all, I don't think we're anywhere near there with current medical technology. Um, well, we certainly, we certainly can't bring people back, right? Because yes, that'll probably take nanotechnology to, you know, make sure that all of the pieces end up back where they belong. But Well, I think part of the process, you can't discount the process of the cooling, right? Because if you cool biological tissues too quickly, then they form ice crystals and the ice crystals yes. burst all the cells. That's and then all of your cells yeah. are, are going to be dead. So it's not just the rewarming, right? You can't just throw yourself, you know, when you're inches from death, you can't just Correct. throw yourself into a vat of liquid nitrogen and wait for uh, yeah. medical science to advance yeah. to the point where you can recover. I think that if we want to do this sort of thing, then you have then both the freezing process and the recovery process need to be perfected. Uh, yes, yeah. because Alcor uh, currently uses a process called vitrification, where they uh, like get rid of the blood and replace it with cryoprotectant that keeps the cells from actually freezing your that you actually I guess you become more uh, like a glass and uh, that again that's a process that would need to be reversed in the future and we don't know how to do that yet actually we've we've reversed it in you know tiny things uh, you know uh, planarians and so on. But so I, I guess I would say that if you can't, if you can't bring someone back, then you can't put, you can't know that you put them under properly, right? You have to do, right. you have to do them both. So all these, I've heard of these companies that are saying we don't know how to unfreeze you, but we'll freeze you, right? And we'll, we'll freeze you now, later. and we'll figure it out later. Yeah. I don't, I don't buy that. And then the other thing you have to consider is that whatever is killing you that's bringing you to the brink of death, you're still going to have that, whether it's cancer or a heart attack or a brain tumor or whatever. You're st that's not going to go away just from the freezing. I understand you're going right. to hope that they've figured something out in the future, but I, I don't know. That's a big gamble to take. And the thing well, is, too, gamble, like if you're... But if if you don't know the end result if you don't know the goal of uh if you don't know the goal of the process how can the method you're using get you there you know what i mean it's well, it's it's goal, kind of like is, well i know the goal, the goal is to is wake is you up but if but if you don't know right. how exactly you're going to do that you know it's kind of like stepping out your front door in cincinnati and being like i'm going to go to new york city and then just setting off in a direction and walking like well, it, you don't know, know what how you, we the Wright brothers didn't know, you know, how they were going to get across the ocean, and we didn't know how we were going to get to. Well, the Wright brothers space. didn't fly across the ocean, and the Wright brothers had a concept of what lift was. So they they had a good uh, they had a good reason to think that this would work. So I mean, Good. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to completely, completely discount it, Kanita. I'm just saying there's, yeah. there's so many caveats here that like, like what MD Aware was saying, like, if we don't do the first steps of the process, right, how do we know that it's going to be reversible in the future? I really don't think that you can be. So I would be extremely well, skeptical. If I can put it in a well, uh, medical context, like, because I do operations, I would not go into 
an operation to say remove a tumor from someone's liver if I wasn't going to be able to put them back together, right? And make sure that they could actually recover from the operation. The bottom line is like in medicine, we try to do as little harm as possible. And, um, and so like if it were me and you were my patient, Kenita, and you came and you said, uh, I have some disease that's going to kill me in three months. Uh, I'd like to get, you know, this cryonic procedure. Uh, what do you think? I would say I recommend that you make the most of the the time that you have left because you may lose that little time to this very uncertain procedure. I would, uh, with you with your not, best no, interest you at not, heart, I would advise you not to go through with this sort of thing. You, you do not put so, you, well, for one thing, it's not legal to do cryonic suspension until after someone has been declared dead, right? You are at the point where if you don't cryonically suspend this person, your only other options are cremation or burial, which have precisely zero chance. The yeah, chance I get what you're saying. Have, if, you get, if you get suspended, it may not be a large chance, but given the trajectory that we seem to be on, right? If you had looked at the Wright brothers and told them that someday people would be on the moon, they might have had enough forward looking to say, oh, yeah, we might be able to do that some way, day. They, we obviously couldn't do it then. We didn't have the materials. We didn't have the science. We didn't know how it could be done. But the possibility was there. And it's like, well, sure, go ahead and give it a try. Basically, yeah, I get, I get you what know, you're saying, uh, Kenita. You're saying that the the risk is basically zero. You're not venturing anything. Uh, but I would say that that's only true if, you know, you consider all the factors, including, you know, the financial factor, are yeah. these places going to charge you like a lot of money? Uh, are they going to, are they scamming you basically? And then how are your, you know, the people who love you going to react to this? You know, are they going to be deprived of, you know, the opportunity to say goodbye through whatever service that, you know, they want to do? I, I just think, you know, obviously, I don't know if this is something that you're considering uh, doing. But, oh, I'm, act I'm actually signed up with Alcor. I have a life insurance policy. Okay. Just like any other life insurance policy, but you know, it pays off to Alcor and it's not like they're getting rich on this because, you know, they only uh it is basically, yeah, they can pretty much keep their doors open and do a little research in the direction of trying to improve both the uh freezing actually vitrification these days process and you know uh looking forward to when nanotechnology which the biological version as opposed to the just molecular machines version will be able to you know it's like once you're in the doer and they just and say in the future they say okay we're going to bring you back uh well, let's see. All of the pieces are still there. And you can pretty much uh, say, well, uh, gee, this nano neurotransmitter has these pieces and okay, they go here, etc., and reconstruct. And once you're reconstructed, they would probably say, you are reconstructed, but we're going to keep you cold because, let's see, your paper says you died of, ah, a thyroid tumor. 
all right, so we'll fix that before we try to bring you back. Because, yeah, we don't want to thaw you out and have you immediately die of a thyroid tumor. Of course, medical science will have improved, certainly in the uh, people suggest anywhere from 100 to 500 years that you they'll be able to fix a lot of this stuff and yeah you would stay in the because once you're at liquid nitrogen temperature you could stay there for an eon and nothing would change right yeah, I, I mean i, I get again, what you're it gets saying. back to the process though that md aware was talking about it's it's the process that's the flaw so they may be able to fix the problem then but they may not be able to fix the deficiencies in our primitive processes that we did back then back now and i i i don't know i wouldn't take that chance what do you think well the more the more advanced the science gets the more uh more damage they'll be able to fix so i think i think i i agree with you kenita that uh medical science is going to continue to advance However, we're still bound by the physical laws of the universe and things like that, right? There is going to be, you know, like, for instance, if we, uh, if this process rendered you or rendered a person essentially down to the individual atoms and lost the information about how those atoms were arranged, you know, there's nothing we can do to rearrange you. That There's a physical, uh, there's a law of physics that acts as a boundary to that. And I don't know, so I don't know anything about this company. I don't know anything about this vitrification process that you're describing. I would say what I've read and what I sort of know from my understanding of biology and medicine, I don't think that this technology is sufficiently mature to be feasible. However, I could be wrong. And I have been wrong in the past and I'm going to be wrong in the future. So maybe I'm wrong about this. But, um, you know, well, I, the only thing I would say is, uh, is you know, it's your body. Obviously, it's your choice. And um, I would just, if it were me, I would be thinking about this, not just in terms of its effect on me, but its effect on all the people that I care about. Oh, that's true. You would. Well said. Uh, yeah. I know other people who are signed up. Some of them have their entire family signed up so that they would be sure to have people around when they came back. Some have relatives and friends who, you know, are up with on with the on board, even though they're not signed up themselves and others are just going it alone. But the idea is that, well, I like living and I would like to have a chance to do more of it. And certainly my, like I said, this is a chance when I would otherwise have none because, uh, and there are people I know who are religious who say, wait a minute, why do I need cryonics? Because I'm going to live forever anyway. And so (laughs) now that, you know, I can, that is an excellent point. I I really like that. You said that Kanita, that, that is an excellent point. Why do you need cryogenics when you have eternity with Jeebus? Uh, That is, (laughs) I love it. All right, Kanita, I think we're going to move on. Um, you wanted a hot take from a medical professional. You got one. You also got one from some random guy in Canada. Uh, but but this was a great call. I want to thank you for calling in, and um, I just I just recommend that, that that you be skeptical and and maybe don't spend too too much money on it because that money could go to improve the lives of people that are still alive, and you might not probably won't be able to be resuscitated according to you know what we know now. And I think what we know now is is infinitely more valuable than what we might know in the future. But hey, it's up to you. 
there's there's little risk. Just just be careful, honey. Thank you for calling. Thanks, Kanita. That was interesting. That was interesting. I'm yeah. uh, I had to resist the urge to make a Futurama joke. I had I, I the same feeling. <laughs> right? I come like, I don't know. Maybe your maybe your dog gets cryogenically frozen and you you wake up a thousand years from now and uh, all of a sudden you find out that that twelve cents you had in your checking accounts now made you a multi billionaire. That would be pretty cool. That would be amazing. Right? But uh, but I totally I totally get Kenita's uh, you know her her assessment of things you know it's kind of like a pascal's wager uh you know she doesn't see a downside if if, uh, if she's going in when she's already dead um, wouldn't that already be too late though like if they were gonna be able to revive you wouldn't they have to do it when there was still some brain activity like once that's gone isn't it gone i mean it depends what you mean by brain activity right this is the thing once you get into the details it's like everything yeah. is a spectrum uh you it's know sticky yeah it's very sticky i, so I don't I'm, i don't I'm, think anybody knows enough about neuroscience to really say when they're you know all those those neurons have stopped firing enough such that your consciousness can't be reanimated yeah yeah i uh i i certainly don't know and uh and i'm not prepared to uh, make any firm statements about it but i like i said i don't think that technology is mature enough to uh, be investing in yet i'd like to see maybe what this company uh has done with animal studies or whatever whatever research Mm -hmm. they've done in preparation for uh human trials Um, well kanita said that they have done this with small animals Um, yeah i'd be interested to read the studies yeah i would love to hear that um i don't know that that's happen um i'm not saying it hasn't kanita if you're still listening uh, but i'm just not familiar with it but you know what that actually is quite fascinating to me and i may just look that up after the show because what we want here on this show is the truth and speaking of the truth we have one more call that i think we ought to get to before the end of the show um we have a returning favorite we have a, a a star caller on the line um somebody that i've heard call into the show before and i'm excited that um that otangelo has called in today he's got a question for you md aware and i am just going to let otangelo ask it himself otangelo welcome back you are on truth wanted yes hello guys thank you for taking my call um, I was specially motivated to call in because I'm seeing that uh, there is a doctor, MD Aware, uh, here on the show. So I think, uh, of course, as a doctor, you are a well-educated person, especially in regards of uh, issues like biology. And um, I think this is an important topic which is commonly being discussed between theists and atheists. So my question would be to you, um, with the evidence that you understand the biology, biochemistry, and these like these things, um, how do you um, explain um, life, the origin of life, and the origin of of us as humans, based on the claim that there is no creator, no designer? Uh, so I think you have two separate questions there. One of them is the origin of life, and the other one's the origin of humans, uh, or if I could put it another way, uh, the origin of species. And I think that that sort of uh, has been very well solved, right? We have a good understanding of how uh, all species, but especially humans, have originated through evolutionary processes. And, uh, you know, we could delve into it for hours and hours, but there's uh, plenty of evidence that shows that once we have, you know, one form of life, one form of self-replicating organism, as you might call it, uh, 
that it can diversify and grow in, you know, complexity and this sort of thing. And so I think that that part of the equation is fairly well settled in the scientific community. Uh, the part that is less well settled is the origin of life, uh, you know, from sort of non-life. And uh, I think we have a lot of biochemical potential explanations for it, right? Um, there are some classic experiments that were done by Russians whose name escaped me uh, back in like the 50s and 60s, I think, um, that show that you can create under these particular environmental conditions, you can get self-replicating molecules from non-self-replicating molecules from basic building blocks. And that's sort of how people get to life. Uh, and there's a lot of hypothetical things we found, you know, through uh, spectroscopy, looking at like the tails of comets in, uh, you know, even our solar system that um, that there are, you know, organic molecules uh, existing in space that we think under the right circumstances could lead to life. But uh, the question that you're asking about, you know, how exactly, what mechanism did, what was the mechanism by which life originally formed? I don't think that we have the answer to that. And I don't think that that's a question that we'll be able to answer uh, to with the same scientific confidence that we can answer the question of evolution, right? We have like a lot of lines of evidence about how uh, species evolved. And what we don't have is, you know, evidence about what the mechanism of the first life form was at this point. And I don't know that that evidence, that physical evidence even exists. So I don't know that that could be determined. You're kind of asking like a historical question almost. And I know that's not super satisfying, but I think that that's probably the accurate answer. Yeah, I, I feel like I don't <laughs> yeah, know is still a better yeah. answer than God did it. But uh, Otangelo, oh, uh, um, of course, um, uh, go ahead and respond. Yeah, of course, the question comes up, uh, when would a designer or intelligence be a more case-adequate explanation, especially in regards of the origin of life? And you are correct in saying that science doesn't have an explanation. Now, the question is, can we say, well, we don't have an explanation yet, and therefore we cannot insert God as, as a gap explanation uh, just because we don't know yet, you know? And I think that... Um, science has moved forward a big deal in about 70 years in regarding to unravel the complexity even of the most simple cell. And science isn't even there to explain the origin of the basic building blocks of life. And, that, and there is a good reason for that, because prior to DNA replication, there was no natural selection. And that is a so big... So I don't think... Well, natural I, I think selection... I, I don't agree with some of the things you're saying there, Otangelo. Um, so we do have evidence of how the basic building blocks can form, like specifically RNAs. Uh, we have evidence of how those can form. Uh, we have evidence of the building blocks of proteins. Those are the things that I was alluding to are found in sort of the tails of comets and things like this. Um, so there are organic molecules that we found. And the other thing that I want to pick up on um, is the fact that um, there are experiments that have shown that it's possible to get to self-replicating molecules and therefore life-like processes through natural means. And I think that right. the fact that we have demonstrated that possibility makes it more likely 
than uh, invoking a divine creator or a designer because we haven't proven that that's a possibility, right? The, dif the difference between, you know, your question was, what's the mechanism by which life did evolve? I don't know that, but I know an example of how life could have evolved. I've demonstrated that, how life could have come from non-life. We have evidence of that uh, through natural processes. What we don't have is any incidents or any evidence to show that there's a possibility that non-life can lead to life through the intervention of a divine creator or a designer of any kind, right? One of them has a demonstration of possibility, the other one doesn't, and neither of them have demonstrations that they actually occurred. One one thing I'd like to point out too is <coughs> yeah, that the time that we can, mm -hmm. Otangelo, if I could just throw this in here real quick, um, the time that yeah, we could sure. maybe reasonably start to consider that God might have done it is when religion is able to push back on a, a scientific theory or, or a scientific um, uh, discovery, right? Like we had God created all the animals. Now we know that that's not true because of the process of natural selection and evolution. We have God created the heavens and the earth in six days. And we know that's not true because the earth now, we know the earth formed from an accretion disk. We have, well, maybe then God just created the universe. And now we know that that's not the case because we have a good idea of how the universe was began. And it seems like religion is constantly being forced back into these tiny gaps of things that, well, I don't know this yet, so therefore God. But I have yet to see an example of, of the opposite of how a, you know, a religious claim has pushed back on a scientific body of knowledge and been correct. Do, can you think of any? Well, let, I mean, you, you guys have raised so many issues which had to, would have to be tackled. And I That's what we do on Truth Wanted, my friend. Here. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but let me address just one assertion, um, sure. which was made by um, uh, MD, MD, and in regards of the origin of RNAs, I'll quote here from um, uh, Leslie Orgel, and he says it is possible that all of these and many other difficulties will one day be overcome and that a convincing prebiotic synthesis of RNA will be become available. However, many researchers in the field, myself included, think that this is very unlikely. So they disagree basically with what MD just said. And I'll quote here also Eugene Cooking in the book, The Logic of Chance. And he says, despite many interesting results to its credit, when judged by the straightforward criterion of reaching or even approaching the ultimate goal, the origin of life field is a failure. We still do not even have a plausible coherent model, let alone a validated scenario for the emergence of life on Earth. And you no, asked, of course well, we don't. But God just because we it? don't know doesn't mean that God did it. And in fact, um, you know, we have evidence that uh, amino acids can indeed form from basic organic compounds. Um, with uh, have you heard of the Miller-Urey experiment, Otangelo? Well, so let me ask you. So yes, of have course. You, have, have you heard of the Miller-Urey experiment, is, though? Yes, yes. So let me ask you something. So suppose that there were over five hundred different amino acids extend uh -huh. on the prebiotic earth. 
and uh -huh. life uses just 20, in some cases 22. Uh -huh. So there uh -huh. was no selection process there because molecules, they do not have by themselves the urge to become alive. Right. So how did amongst all these 500 um, uh, nature select those which are used in life, concentrated them then in a very specific building site to then start to complexify themselves and becoming uh, complex proteins and in the end uh, that's a pretty small dice roll factory. that's a pretty small dice roll even if you've got 500 and, and you only need 22 if you've got all of these chemicals and all of these compounds in forming uh conjoining interacting boiling and bubbling it seems pretty likely that at some point you're going to get the right mix um but i want to go back to the to the miller urey experiment because we have actually tried to assemble basic compounds in a in our best understanding of a primordial earth environment and we have found that they did form themselves into these basic building blocks of life and this isn't by design this is just chemistry yeah exactly that's all it's, it is it's, it's physic it's the physical properties kind of I, I i have trouble parsing out exactly what you mean with your example with the 500 amino acids going down to like the 20 i'm i'm not sure what you're getting at otangelo but i think what i would say is that it's all boiling down to physical processes why did these 20 why were these 20 you know uh, you you would say selected for life mm. they were selected through natural processes because they were the most effective ones in performing whatever task it was that led them to the ability to self-replicate because of their physical characteristics right it's the same way that like why does a piece of driftwood wash up on the beach when a rock sinks to the bottom of the ocean right it's because of the physical characteristics of the thing right a piece of driftwood is long it's buoyant on the water it can wash up and it can look like you know when the tide goes out that it's left you know, uh, almost like a fence looking thing up on uh, the beach. And you might be fooled into thinking that somebody designed and put that fence there. But really what this arose from was just the physical characteristics of the objects interacting with their environment. And it's really the same, like <laughs> kind of like we say, it's turtles all the way down. It's all just, yeah. uh, it's all just physical things interacting by physical laws with their environment. That's certain, that's at least what I would say. And the only other thing that I would challenge you on, Otangelo, is if you're is if you're going to say that God is a more likely explanation, then you have to prove God first before you can use God as an explanation for a phenomenon like the origin of life. You have to establish that God exists the same way that we had to establish that chemistry exists. We had to establish the laws of physics and biochemistry before we could use that as an explanation for the origin of life. And so I would say that you, you know, if you want to make the claim that God is the explanation for the origin of life, then you would have to do all that same work that all these physicists and chemists and biochemists have done over the past, you know, 300 years before you can make that claim. Well, I disagree with what you said that uh, molecules, they could eventually um, interact uh, together and then somehow complexify. And the scientific evidence is actually exactly the opposite. And I can that's quote not you that's here not from true. a science paper that's from Stephen Banner. In, uh, seen it yeah, happen. let me uh, give you that quote but, here. But no, but, but Otangelo, an energy Otangelo, 
That's simply not true, well, though. What can I answer I mean, to you? You Could, can well, say well, it, but that doesn't make it what they so. Otangelo, listen, let's let's have a conversation here. I want you to go and look at this Miller-Urey experiment. We have literally observed basic compounds obs- uh, um, forming into these amino acids with no intervention whatsoever. We've seen it happen. We've documented it happening. It's been peer-reviewed. Other people have tried to reproduce this, and it worked. That's that's what science is. Is is did it work for you? Hey, let me try it. Yeah, hey, it worked for me. Hey, maybe we're on to something here. So for you to just say that it didn't happen when I've literally just given you an example of when it happened, it seems a little bit dishonest. So I kind of well, I mean the other thing that to... I would the other thing I would say, Otangelo, is you know, maybe you and I are reading different papers. Um, sure. Uh, you know, I ha- I it's literally my job right now to read, uh, you know, papers and interpret their experimental results and try to figure out what the truth is. Right. Um, and so maybe you and I are just reading different papers. So I think what the solution is, is what you should do is you should look up a technique called a systematic review. And that's a method of searching through all of the published literature and you narrow your search in on a subject. And so what you could do is you could create a systematic review, conduct a systematic review of the literature using whatever, you know, search tool that you want, like Google Scholar is a reasonable place to start. And you conduct a search that identifies every single paper that has investigated this. And then you have to weigh up all of those after you've reviewed them all. And on balance, then you can say, well, the weight of the literature, the weight of the experimental evidence says one or the other. And I haven't done that systematic review. And I don't know if you have, I would venture to guess that you haven't because it's a reasonably complex thing to do. But if you're really passionate about answering this question, and this means a lot to you, then I think that's your next step. Okay, can I answer now? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so um, again, first of all, um, in that Miller-Urey experiment, there were not all amino acids synthesized. Eight have never been synthesized, like tryptophan, which is the most complex amino acid. It has never been synthesized in the lab. You have the homochirality problem and many other problems which have not been solved. But I would like to address again what you claimed, that some chemical reactions eventually could then complexify to end, in the end and the trajectory to come to a self-replicating living form. Um, uh, Otangelo, I just want to make sure. Did you did you hear what I what I said? Yes. And could could I please now quote uh, just to, no, so, to so I think I, I think. If regardless of what you quote, I think that the problem still remains that you and I are obviously reading different papers, right? You can quote and I could go and look through the literature and I could quote, but until we've both done a systematic review and looked at all of the papers, then how do we know that you're not just happen, you just, you know, don't happen to be uh, coming across all of the papers that tend to support your conclusion, right? And I'm, I could be coming across and reading only the papers that support my conclusion, because in any scientific field, there's going to be, you know, uh, some debate amongst scientists about the nuances of what happened. So I think, you know, rather than going back and forth quoting papers, we need to do a proper, thorough, systematic review of all of the published experiments on this before we can draw a conclusion. Well, I quoted you from Eugene Kunin. You can look him up. He's a very respected um, uh, biochemist, and he has concluded that there is no known trajectory of how life could have started after 60, 70 years of 
scientific investigation. And one right. problem, a big problem, is that systems given energy and left to themselves devolve to give useless complex mixtures asphalts. The literature reports uh, exactly zero confirmed observations where replicating uh, a replication involving replicable imperfections, evolution emerged spontaneously from a devolving chemical system. It is impossible for any living chemical system. Uh, no, no, okay, no, but that's that's a leap, Angelo. You just made another leap there, though. You went from your expert doesn't know to it's impossible. And your expert can't know that because he wasn't there four and a half billion years ago. There's no way for him to know that. Well, but, and just uh, because we haven't well, discovered we... how tryptophan originally came to be, again, it doesn't mean God did it. I don't know is still a better well, answer. I would say can well, we can use eliminative inductions. And when we have two possible explanations, one is intelligence and the other is no intelligence and the no intelligence hypothesis only results in um, no positive um, end result in, in going to, to show that life from non-life by undirected means is possible, then it is logical that at a certain point you need to come to the conclusion, well, well that's okay, because Otangelo, we don't know, let, let me ask you something. That your answer is correct, though. Yeah, like, let, let me, let me ask saying, you, I don't Otangelo. know doesn't mean that you got it right. That's that's not how science works. Let me ask you, Otangelo, if... Um, so say say you're right. Currently, say just for hypothetical that right now we don't have evidence that uh, non-life can give rise to life. Does that mean that we can reasonably draw the conclusion that God did it? I would say no, because tomorrow I could go into the lab and do an experiment that shows that life can arise from non-life. We can't conclude that it's possible yet. I th my read of the literature is that we can conclude that, but you disagree. So that's fine. Until we do a systematic review of the literature and we, you know, get a good balanced assessment, we shouldn't make a decision either way. But Nate's point is still valid, right? Just because we haven't figured it out yet doesn't mean that you can just appeal to God did it. Okay. In what case would you say, okay, God is the better explanation? I would like, not. I've already answered that question. Um, if there was ever a case so where religion so was able to disprove something uh, that that's that the body of scientific data had already established, because again, scientific data has pushed the religious narrative back again and again and again and again. I'm not familiar with any examples where the opposite is true. So if maybe if maybe that started to happen, then I would would give it a little more credence. But Otangelo, yeah. we have to wrap up. Um, I just want to say that I like you, man. I like talking to you, even though we disagree and we can get a little bit heated. I like the fact that you're calling in and you're asking questions. You seem like an honest guy. And um, and yeah, I, even though we disagree, I, I really do like talking to you. And uh, I hope I get to talk to you again. Yeah, I, I think, Otangelo, uh, you've got a very curious mind. And I think if you applied yes. it, you could be a really good scientist. You know, you could, um, if you learned some research techniques, uh, you could be really driven and uh, and very, very productive uh, as a scientist, if that if that's what you wanted to do. Otangelo is awesome. I, are you there? I think he's, I think he's gone. Looks like it, eh? Uh, I think he's gone. That's okay. Hey, you know what? Um, 
I love the conversations where you can talk to people that you disagree and not just get into shouting matches. Uh, I think yeah. that is the mission of the ACA. And and I love that Otangelo called in. And your answers were, were on point. Mm, like, knocked it out of the park for a first-timer. I mean, like I say, I, uh, I do I do science every day of the week. So That's um, amazing. All right. Well, folks, we do have to get going. But before we do, I want to, again, thank MD Aware for being on the show. MD Aware, where can our audience find out more about you? Uh, so I am like, I don't have anything to promote. I don't have uh, anything to push or sell. I'm just here to uh, answer questions. So cool. we'll see uh, if there's demand and the ACA wants to invite me back. Uh, to be on Truth Wanted at some point. I'm happy to we'll oblige. See if, we'll see if we like you. I drink Budweiser, yeah. by the way, just saying. Um, yeah. That might help your case. But folks, for the rest of you, <laughs> if you'd like to support the show, you can do so by donating to our Patreon at tiny.cc slash Patreon. TW. There's a couple different tiers there. You could get your name shouted out during the show if you donate, and you will be a part of producing more epic content with folks like MD Aware and some other random guy. Also, you can support the show by becoming a member. You can get emojis in our live chat. Your name gets highlighted in the chat in the fancy green letters, and you will be immune to chat timeouts. It shall not touch you. You can talk as much as you want for as little as 99 cents a month. So become a member on the YouTube and support our mission. We've also got merch. Go to tiny.cc slash merch ACA. We got your hoodies. We got your stickers. We got your t-shirts. And we got your masks. See ya, folks. This COVID thing is not going away anytime soon. So get yourself a Truth Wanted mask. Uh, and you can also listen to our audio-only channel. Apparently, people listen to this show in audio-only. I feel bad for you that you can't see my handsome mug, but, you know, that's fine. I listen to all the ACA shows while I'm at work. I've got it just talking in my ear as I work away. So go to tiny.cc slash AEN podcast for your one-stop shop to all of our shows in audio-only form. You'll find your Truth Wanted, and you'll find me on a couple of other shows every now and then. Maybe you'll find MD Aware, too, as well. And for those of you who might be bashful, for those of you who might not want to call in, you don't have to call in live. I understand. It's tough. It's intimidating. You can also email us, and we may just hit up your question with the mailbag. Email us at truth at atheist-community.org. Or, a little quicker, there's also a Facebook group. It's run for fans. It's run by fans. The Truth Wanted Fan Group, tiny.cc slash FBTWG. I'll say that again. Tiny.cc slash FBTWG. Interact with other fans. I've uh, recently posted a, a very, very juicy picture about uh, the, the birds aren't real conspiracy that MD Aware and I were talking about before the show. And that is some legendary stuff. Um, last but definitely not least, I want to thank the people who actually do the work to make this show a reality so that uh, guys like MD and guys like me can sit up here and talk to guys like Otangelo. I want to see the crew. Show me that crew cam. Crew! 
Look at those handsome devils. Wow. Thanks, guys. Thank you for doing what you do um, every every single week. You mean the world to us. So that's our show for tonight. Um, I was your temporary host, Nate Smith. Dan will be back. I believe he's back next week. Um, but yes, he, he's going to be back, folks. You're not stuck with me for very long. And as always, remember, seek out the truth. See you next time. Kitty! Watch the nonprofits and join the hosts in the live chat Sundays at 3 p.m. Central between the Atheist Experience and Talk Heathen. Visit tiny.cc/ytnp.